This is the Serious Sira Podcast, Episode 10, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sira, Episode 10. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah and want to discover the beautiful life model, the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. So in today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The conversion of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, radiallahu anhu, the first delegation from Yathrib. The message of Islam begins to spread in Yathrib. The night journey and the, ascension, and the Ascension, also known as Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. The five daily prayers are established and the lessons of the night journey and the Ascension. So stay tuned for Serious Sira, Episode 10. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers, because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah, and they were a magnificent brotherhood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. We're going to continue with our Sira class. Let's begin with a quick Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Nahmadahu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'aghfiru wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. When we left off last week, we were talking about the Prophet's trip to Ta'if with Zayd ibn Haditha the revelation of Salat al-Jinn, uh, which came after the people of Ta'if treated him very poorly. We spoke about how they were they began to stone him. The child, They sent the children after him to stone him and Zaid, and how the leaders of that town, they treated him very harshly. They said very you know, uh, disrespectful and rude things to him. Then they sent the young people of the city after him, chasing him and stoning him. They had no idea that many years later, they will be sending a delegation to him trying to make peace negotiations many years later. But at this time, they just saw him as someone that they could, you know, abuse. And they took every advantage, advantage of that. And they, they uh, sent, they did abuse him and almost killed him. Him and Zay took refuge inside of a garden. And he spoke for a little while with a Christian slave or servant who was working there. And then he left, and that's when he received the uh, revelation of Siddhartha Jinn, letting him know that there were these creatures called Jinn who were listening to him recite the Quran and that many of them had accepted Islam. So now we return to Mecca. Prophet Muhammad and Zayd, they returned to Mecca, and you can imagine how depressed or at least how I won't say depressed but how upset how discouraged they may have been they were hoping that maybe they would have received a positive response from Ta'if but instead they were treated in a very horrible and harsh manner and now they have to come to Mecca 
and all the burdens that that are happening over there with the oppression and the persecution and the the finger pointing and the name calling and all the other things he has to deal with and he doesn't have the support of his uncle anymore nor his wife Khadija because they have both died so you can imagine how low his morale must have been he has barely a hundred followers and many of them are in hiding or have to hide their faith or they're being oppressed or they have to go through all sorts of you know strange measures to just just to be able to pray they have to pray in secret and even though he does have the support of Omar ibn al-Khattab and his uncle Hamza ibn Abi Talib still there's still an, an oppressed minority inside of Mecca and so things are really not looking good for the messenger of Allah right now things are really looking down this is called this is the end of the 10th year which is called the year of grief or the year of sorrow and these three events, the death of his uncle and death of Khadija, and then the the bad reception at Taif kind of culminates everything there. But now they come back to Mecca and the Hajj season is coming up or the pilgrimage season is coming up. And he wants to once again go back and try to spread the message of Islam among the different people who are coming from all over the Arabian Peninsula into Mecca to make pilgrimage to the Hajj. Now there are two events we have to talk about here: the prophet's delegation or the prophet's attempt at preaching during the the Hajj season, and also Al Isra wal Mi'raj, which is the the night travel and the ascension. Both of these happen in the eleventh year of the message. Now there's dispute about which came first, whether Al Isra wal Mi'raj was before the Hajj and afterwards. No one really knows exactly when it is, so. Scholars have tried their best to piece it together based on different hadiths, but no one knows exactly what month it took place. So we're just going to have to do our best. But I'm going to go with the assumption, basically, that the Hajj season happened first, and then Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj happened afterwards. And there's really no way to really know, so you can take it either way. And both have have validity, and Allah only truly knows best. Unfortunately, the records were not kept at that time. So during this hard season now, after return from Ta'if, the Prophet then, you know, he goes to the different tribes that are coming into Mecca. And as I mentioned before, Mecca was a hard, it was a pilgrimage destination. And all of these tribes are coming in from all over Arabia. Now, Mecca is somewhere on on the western, close to the western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. But people are coming from as far south as Yemen, as far north as Syria. People are coming from all over to make pilgrimage to to the to the Kaaba to pray to their deities and all that stuff. So one of one of the uh, hopes that a prophet had was that he would be able to convince one of these tribes, one of these visiting tribes, or what some people from one of these visiting tribes, to accept Islam, and maybe give him and his followers some refuge. And so he is going from, he was he did this before on the previous, on some of the previous high seasons as well, but he may not have had a ch- much of a chance to do that during the previous three years because of the boycott, and that may have held him back from doing it because at that time it was, they were just trying to survive. There wasn't much they can do even with, as far as um trying to spread the message, 
at that point in time, it was just a matter of survival. But now the boycott is over. And so he goes to the uh, Kaaba precincts and begins to talk to the people there. But by and large, he talks to tribe after tribe after tribe, people after people. The vast majority of them did not accept the message. There were a few exceptions, however. One of the most notable exceptions was a man named Abu Dhar al-Rifari. Now, al-Rifari was his tribal name. That was the name of his tribe. He came from the tribe of al-Rifar. And the Rifar tribe was known, they were like highway robbers. They were like bandits. You can imagine, if you ever saw the movie with uh, Mel Gibson, with the... um. Terradrome or welcome to it. It was after the apocalypse came and people made their lie basically by looting other by basically looting other people and robbing other people's, you know, goods and stuff. And that's how you had these highway robbers. They rode on motorcycles in the movie. Well, Al Rifati, they rode on camels and stuff, and their whole thing, they their business was robbery. That's all they did. They didn't have trade, they didn't grow plants, they didn't grow food. Their business was your business, which was basically robbing your business. And that's all they did. And Abu Dhar came from this kind of tribe. You can imagine then that a person who comes from this tribe would have to naturally be pretty harsh and pretty rough. And Abu Dhar al-Rifari, as as is seen in the in the in the history of Islam, after even after the death of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was a very harsh critic of other Muslims who did not live up to certain standards. Now Abu Dhar before he actually became Muslim, he had heard about this man in in Mecca saying all these things about there's one God and you got to stop worshiping these idols. And it piqued his interest. He was curious about it. He was not your typical highway robber. I guess the average highway robber, the only thing they're concerned about is looting the next caravan. Abu Dhar, he was more of a spiritual person and he was he was always a bit of an odd person as far as his tribe was concerned. But he was also, he was still had the genetics of a highway robber, even though he did not, as far as we know, he did not involve himself in that. He did not, he was not involved in that activity himself. It was still part of his culture and his DNA. So he had that roughness to him that anyone growing up in that society would be. But he's always a bit odd. And even when you read his, his uh, Sira or you read his life history, compared to the other companions, compared to the Ansar and compared to the Muhajirun, he was always a little bit different. Not weird different, but he just stood out a little bit differently from everybody else. But in any case, he heard about the message of Islam, heard about Prophet Muhammad. And so he came to Mecca to try and find out about him, to try, try to find out more. Well, actually, first he sent his brother. He sent his brother to Mecca to try and find out more about him. And his brother came to Mecca for the hot season and then came back to uh, the tribe of, of Ghifad and told his, and told Abu Dhar, well, there's this man, he says, Enjoying good and forbid evil. And Abu Dhar, being the rough, direct-to-the-point person he was, says, says, you haven't told me anything. You're not doing me any good. Let me go do this on my own. And so he leaves his tribe and goes to Mecca to try and find out on his own. His brother, he sent his brother to get the information. The brother gave him one line. Enjoying what is right, forbid what is evil. That's not enough. He needs more information. He needs to know for sure. He needs to get some concrete information right from the source and so he comes to mecca to try to find out on his own what this whole thing about islam and this muhammad guy what it's all about so he comes to mecca 
And at first he doesn't know where to go. So he just stays in the, in the Kaaba precincts and he lives off of Zamzam water. He was actually drinking the water from the well of Zamzam and was living off of that, not eating any food, just living off of the, the water in and of itself from Zamzam. Eventually, however, he begins to ask people about who's this Muhammad guy. And it's like he asks one question too many. And then suddenly everyone in Mecca, well, not everyone, but all of the enemies of Islam, they pounce on him. Now, remember, Abu Dhar is not from Mecca. He doesn't have any protection. He's a stranger. It's outside the hot season, so all bets are off now. He doesn't have the protection of the sanctity of the holy months or anything like that, or the sacred months. He doesn't have any of those protections. And so when he starts asking all these questions, you can imagine somebody walking into hostile territory and asking all the wrong questions. You're going to eventually bring the wrong attention to yourself. And he did this. And all the enemies of Islam pounced on him and began to beat him and beat him and beat him. But eventually, Al-Abbas, who was an uncle, another uncle of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and some people say that he may have taken his Islam, taken Shahada in secret, but we don't really know. He did eventually become Muslim, of course, definitely out and out Muslim after the conquest of Mecca. There's no doubt about it then. But even during this time, there is some dispute about whether he may have been, may have just taken Shahada and may have hidden it. But Abu um, Al Abbas, he saw the people beating on Abu Dhar, and he rushed out there and he said, "Don't you know what you're doing? This guy is from Al Rifad. He's from the tribe of Rifad. If you hurt this guy, our caravans will not be safe. They will." tear us apart and remember mecca's business is caravans it's trade and so they get on the wrong side of the Rafar tribe they can forget it these guys are going to hit them every single time they step foot outside of mecca they're going to hit them and they kill one of their brethren and so the meccans hear this and they kind of back off and they realize that they got to be careful with this guy now abu Dhar, just so you know he does eventually meet with prophet muhammad and he does accept islam he goes back to his tribe of Al-Rifar and these highway robbers, these criminal, these professional career bandits, he manages to spread the message of Islam to all of them and the entire tribe accepts Islam. Many, it took many years now. It didn't happen all, the, all right away. But still, they all wound up accepting Islam and after the Prophet moved to Medina, which we'll get to probably in another couple of classes, after Prophet moved to Medina, Abu Dhar eventually came, came to Medina with about 70 families from his tribe who had accepted Islam. So this goes to show that it doesn't really matter what someone's background is. The people of Mecca were the noblest of people. They were the, mo- the noblest of the Arabs. They had the Kaaba in their midst. You know, many of them were great with poetry. They were in a very professional uh, field of trade, a very respected and professional field of trade. Everyone respected them, yet they had to be dragged, kicking and streaming and screaming into Islam. They didn't accept Islam until the Prophet brought an army of 20,000 people to their doorstep. Then they wanted to accept Islam. Whereas the Rifar tribe, this tribe of professional bandits, professional highway robbers, they accept Islam simply on the word of their brother, Abu Dhar. Now, it did take some convincing. He had to talk to them for a long time, but they did eventually come to Islam, and it didn't take an army of 20,000 people to bring them into Islam. So it goes to show that just because someone is educated doesn't mean they're necessarily intelligent. Or just because someone has a high status in society doesn't mean that they're necessarily noble. 
the people of, of Ikhifar, they accepted Islam before the people of Mecca did. And so really, faith is in the hands of Allah. That's what the overall lesson for this is. But Abu Dhar was an exception to the rule. Most of the people who came through Mecca did not accept Islam. Most of the pilgrims who came through Mecca did not accept Islam. And the Prophet would go to tribe after tribe and talk to them. But most of them either rejected him outright or they were kind, but gave him a polite rejection notice, like, thank you for coming out, but we we decided to go a different way. You know, different method, you know, maybe kind, a kind rejection, but still rejection. One, one exception was one Sahaba named Tufel ibn Amr. He was from the Daos tribe. He did hear the message, of, the message of Islam, and he did, he did accept Islam, and he then went, he was from a tribe called Daos, which is outside of Mecca. He did accept Islam, and then he also went and spread the message to his immediate family. His parents accepted Islam, and then his wife, his wife also accepted Islam. And then after the hot season was over, he went back to his tribe. His, his tribe, however, was more resistant than Abu Dhar's tribe. Uh, Abu Dhar's tribe came, came around within a couple of years. But Tufel's tribe, they didn't come around so quickly. And there's even a hadith where Tufel, he came back to, um, I think it was Medina. At the time, he came to meet the Prophet Muhammad in Medina at one point and was complaining about his people. They just won't accept Islam. I'm giving them the truth. I'm talking to them. They just will not accept it. And then he asked the Prophet, ask Allah to curse them for not accepting Islam. Ask Allah to send his wrath upon them. Instead, however, Prophet Muhammad made dua for them that they will be guided to the light of Islam. And sure enough, eventually, the entire tribe of Daos accepted Islam as well. But this was many years later. But still, they all became Muslim. And this is just one exception to the rule of the vast majority of people who were not, who were making that pilgrimage to Mecca during this 11th year. And most of them rejected Prophet Muhammad But Abu Dhar and Tufel were some of the exceptions. There, there was one more exception. Now, this is the most important one of all. The news of Prophet Muhammad's message was starting to spread now around the Arabian Peninsula. And there were some people who lived in a small, not much more than a village called Yathrib, about 150 miles or so away from Mecca. This small village was mostly comprised of two tribes, one tribe called Aus and one tribe called Khazraj. And these guys were always at each other's throat. They had gone through generations and generations of warfare. You know the popular story, the Hatfield and McCoys here in the United States of these two families who are always in persistent family feud where the Aus and the Khazraj were the Arabian version of the Hatfield and McCoys multiplied by a hundred because these guys weren't weren't just and this wasn't just legend these guys were in absolute warfare for generations and it was to the point they had killed most most of their fighting men had been killed in battle with these two guys fighting each other so the Aus and the Khazraj they had kind of got tired of killing each other by by this time, and they wanted to know there's some way that they could stop all this stuff 
also within their city lived several Jewish tribes. And Jewish tribes, they had nothing to do with the fighting. They took sides based on whichever was more convenient, <clears throat> whoever was, you know, whoever gave them the better deal. The Jewish tribes took tribe, you know, they, they, I won't say they were instigators, but they were they were opportunists as far as the war between the Aus and the Khazraj was. Now the hot season comes along and six people from Medina go to Mecca in the hope of maybe they can hear something about this guy who's talking about not worshiping idols and only worshiping one God. And he says he's a prophet. And they go this, they do this because they had been, they had grown up around the Jewish tribes. We mentioned they had these Jewish tribes already. They already had the societal problems. Their societies, big rifts, there's torn apart, people killing each other. You know, this, this constant family feud between these two tribes is going on and on and on. But they also grew up around around these Jewish tribes. And the Jewish tribes were monotheists, of course. They worshipped Allah, Allah only. They had their own problems as far as, as far as Aqidah and behavior and character was concerned. But they were monotheists. They did have the message of Tawheed. They were constantly warning the Aus and the Khazraj who lived in Yathrib. They were constantly warning them, the Jews that were, that they were constantly warning them that one day, one day our prophet is going to come. They knew that there was still another prophet to come. And how they knew this, Allah knows best, but the Jews have a long history of what's called Kabbalah, being able to use the um, the Hebrew scripture to, they also have a long, they have a long history of fortune telling period and magic and sorcery from the days in Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. They have a long history from that. But they also, Jews have been around for over a thousand years, even the time Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu came around. So they have a long history of fortune telling and sorcery and black magic. And like I said, they've also had what they learned from the Egyptians during the many centuries that they were in slavery and also not in slavery in Egypt as well. So the Jews, they knew a little bit about foretelling the future and knowing how to read future events and reading the stars and all this sort of stuff, astronomy and stuff like that. And they were telling them that, you know, one day we got a prophet coming by. We got a new prophet coming through soon. And when he comes, oh, you Arabs, you think you got the upper hand right now because there's more of you. But when our prophet comes, we are going to wipe you out and we are taking over. And so the Aus and the Khazraj, they were always kind of worried about this because they were always around these Jews. They were kind of worried. The Jews were very educated. They could read and write. They spoke several languages. They spoke Arabic, obviously. They spoke Hebrew. They could read and write both languages. They always seemed to be very educated. They had the most money. They always seemed to get into these really advantageous deals with the Arabs where they would charge riba and interest and the Arabs, no matter how much money, how much they would do, they always seemed to be in debt to the Jews. So they looked up to the Jews with respect because the Jewish tribes in the area seemed to have upper hand on them. While the, whereas the Arabs are fighting each other and killing each other, talking about the Aus and the Khazraj, whereas the Aus and the Khazraj were fighting and killing each other, and destroying their society, the Jews were getting rich. They had huge, huge orchards, well-built, for, well-built fortresses. They were, doing, they were doing pretty good, and they were very well-educated compared to the Arabs who were still worshipping stones and bricks and stuff. And so the Arabs look up to the Jews. And so when they told them that we got a prophet coming through, and when he comes, we're going to wipe you guys out, they took it seriously. So when they heard about this guy in Mecca saying he's a prophet, 
they were thinking maybe we should go and check this guy out and see if maybe, you know, he would help us out rather than go and help the Jews or at least maybe give us give us some sort of concession if he is going to really go help the Jews. So they went to Mecca for the Hajj pilgrimage and eventually the two the two sides meet. Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr meet with the six members from the tribe of there was uh, I believe six from the tribe of four from the tribe of um of uh, Khazraj and two from the tribe of Aus. Six members in total from Yathrib and Prophet Muhammad Sassam and Abu Bakr anhu, they all met together. Now it is unlikely that anyone here in this meeting of eight people knew the repercussions and the significance of this meeting. I don't think any of them knew that this one little meeting between these two groups would lead to events that would change the history of the world forever. I don't. I can't say how any of them knew. Maybe Prophet Muhammad knew. Allah knows best. Everybody else, there's no way they could have known that this one little meeting right here would change history forever after that. But nonetheless, they met. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu began to preach to, to preach to them about Islam. And the Aus and the Khazraj, remember, they're in a, a pretty bad state. They just got through a terrible, another terrible war, battle with each other. And so they are desperate for some sort of leadership, something to, something to unify them. And also, they're still kind of worried about that prophecy from the Jews saying that they got a prophet coming through. So they talk about it amongst themselves. And they're like, you know, what if this is that guy? What if this is that guy that the Jews have been talking about? What if this is that prophet who they say is going to come and lead them to victory over us? Maybe, you know, we can be early investors. You know, how it is, um, when a company goes public, the people who invest early, they're the ones who make out with the most money. And so they're thinking not in terms of financial money, of course, but they are definitely concerned about their own well-being. They're like, maybe we should get the jump on this. And join this guy right now before he meets with the Jews and they go and claim him for their own. And so they're convinced of Islam. They're convinced that Prophet Muhammad is a prophet of Allah and they accept Islam. And they promise to go back to Yathrib, their their village, and spread the message amongst their people. And like I said, it's impossible to know if anybody knew (laughs) the the things that will come out from this one meeting. I don't, it's just, I just can't imagine anyone else except for Prophet Muhammad Sassam knowing how significant that one meeting in the precincts of the Kaaba during the pilgrimage season in Mecca over 1400 years ago would have meant so much to so many people, would have changed the world and affected the lives of billions of people going forward. And Allah knows best. But the people of Yathrib, they go back, the Aus and the Khazraj, those six members, they go back to Yathrib and they began to spread the message amongst their people. And like the tribe of Abu Dhar, they began to accept, the people are much more open and much more acceptable to the message of Islam. And many of families within the, the city of Yathrib began, or really more of a village of Yathrib, began to accept Islam. And Prophet Muhammad says, he doesn't know all this is happening. You know, they don't have cell phones. People couldn't send messages back and forth saying that, you know, your, your, 
your pro- your message is doing pretty good here. We got about six converts today. We got five converts yesterday. There's no way for him to know that. So after the people of Yathrib went back to their hometown and after the pilgrimage was over, Prophet Muhammad Hassan had to go about business as usual. But when someone's a prophet, there is no such thing as business as usual. And now we begin to enter the story of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. This story is very popular. It is an important part of Muslim history. I'm going to send you a link where you can read the hadith from Sahih Bukhari about the whole about the about the whole uh, event of Isra wal Mi'raj, but I will go over it. But I will go over it briefly. I'm not going to go into all the details because you can read the hadith, and I'm not going to read the hadith to you. So you can read the hadith if you want to get more details to it. But Al Isra wal Mi'raj. Let's understand the meaning of it first. Al Isra means night journey. It means the night journey. Isra means night journey. Mi'raj means ascension or going up. Anzal means coming down. Mi'araj means going up. And so it was the night journey, which was the journey at night that the Prophet Muhammad made from the Kaaba to Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. And then al-Mi'araj was traveling through the seven heavens up into heaven, up in, through the seven heavens until he actually was in the presence of Allah. And we'll go through that very quickly right now, inshallah. So the, in the hadith, an angel comes and opens up Prophet Muhammad's chest and washes his, his heart with water from Zamzam. And then they he, he instructs him to mount on this beast called a Barak. And this beast is larger than a donkey, but smaller than a mule. And a mule is a hybrid between a donkey and a horse. So... It's basically a medium-sized horse-like animal, but it's not exactly a horse. And this animal travels extremely fast. Prophet Muhammad described it as traveling as far as I can see in one stride. I look at that as basically traveling instantaneously. Because if you look at it, he travels as far as I can see in one stride. That seems like traveling one place to another almost instantaneously, light speed practically. And light travels like 800 miles per second, something like that. So he got on this animal and he's whisked over to Beitul Maqdis, to, not Beitul Maqdis, Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. And then he ascends in, he ascends through the seven heavens. And this is one something that you can't really explain physically. And that is also one of the questions about al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, whether it was a physical travel or whether it was a spiritual travel and most scholars seem to say there was actually both it was both spiritual and physical there are some who say it was only spiritual and i don't know if man says only physical i'll see how it could be just physical but anyway it was spiritual and physical in the fact that allah knows best perhaps the travel from kaaba to jerusalem was physical whereas the travel through the seven heavens was spiritual allah knows best the point is that he did travel through the seven heavens. And as he goes through the seven heavens, he meets the other prophets who came before him. He meets Adam, alayhi salam. He meets Yunus, alayhi salam. He meets Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam. He meets Musa, alayhi salam. He meets Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam. He meets Harun, Aaron, alayhi salam. He meets all the prophets, not all the prophets, he meets several prophets through the different heavens 
of as it go, as it goes through the, through the different heavens. He also sees some of the punishment that people will will experience in the next life. He sees the punishment of people for people who backbite. He sees the punishment for people who eat the treasure or the wealth of orphans unjustly. He sees the punishment for those people who commit zinna, which is illegal sexual intercourse, fornication, or adultery. He sees these the punishment that these people that these people will go through. He sees the children who are who have died in who have died in childhood, and he sees them with Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam. He sees many wonderful things. He sees the the mystical low tree, which is known as Sidratul Muntaha. He sees the the mystical low tree in heaven as well. He also sees um, Beitul Ma'mur, which is the highest abode or the highest level of paradise, in which the Hadith says that 70,000 angels pass through Beitul Ma'mur, the highest abode, every day. And they see it and they can never come back because that's it. That's the only time, chance to see it. So 70,000 angels see the see Beitul, Beitul Ma'amur and then they go on. And another 70,000 come for their turn. And it is really a, an amazing experience. And then most, the most important thing from us as a, from a, a fiqh and sharia standpoint is when he's within the presence of Allah and Allah gives him the commandment for Muslims to pray 50 times a day. And so he gets this this order from Allah and he's be, he begins to descend back down through the heavens and then Musa stops him. And Musa like, hold on, wait, 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 wait. What did, your, what did your Lord tell you? And the prophet tells him that he ordered my people to pray 50 times a day. And Musa, he knows, he knows what it is about people and he had himself some hard-headed people himself in the, in the children of Israel. He's like, your people cannot handle it. Take it for someone who knows. They cannot handle it. It's too much for them. Go back to your Lord and ask him to reduce it. And so Prophet Muhammad says, he said, well, he knows more than I do, or he know, he's been prophet longer than I have. Let me go back to Allah and ask him. So it goes back to Allah, and Allah gives him a concession and reduces it down to 40. He comes back through, and Musa meets him again. And he's like, well, what did your Lord tell you this time? He said, well, he, he loaded down to 40. He's like, no, still too much. Still too much. Go back. And see if he can lower it down some more. So Prophet Muhammad goes back to Allah, goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and asks him again to lower it down. He lowers it down to 30. This goes back and forth. Every time Prophet Muhammad says, Musa, Musa tell him, your people cannot handle it. You gotta lower it down. Trust me, I know. My people are some of the hard, most hard-headed and hard-backed people you can imagine. They can't handle it. You gotta get it down lower. And go back and forth. Musa was would suggest he goes well request he goes back to Allah and get it lowered down some. Prophet Muhammad gonna go back, get it lowered down by about five or ten. Come back to Musa, Musa says, still not enough. It's still too much. Bring it down some more. This kept on happening until it got down to five. And Musa is saying it's still too much. You gotta go back and get him to lower it down some more. But Prophet Muhammad says, No, that's it. I can't I'm too ashamed to go back anymore. That's it. But Allah blessed the prayer. In the fact that every prayer is worth 10 times its amount if it's done properly. And so even though we only have to pray five times a day now, through the mercy of Allah, your five daily prayers can be worth 50 daily prayers. What this shows us is, for one thing, the importance of prayer. This is something that was communicated directly to the Messenger of Allah 
directly from from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's differences of opinions. Um, Ibn Abbas and Aisha, they differed as to whether Prophet Muhammad actually saw Allah. Ibn Abbas said he did. Aisha, his wife, said he did not. Most scholars agree with Aisha that he did not see Allah directly. And there's a hadith that kind of indicates he didn't see Allah directly because he was asked about it. He's, and Prophet Muhammad said, I couldn't see anything. There was only light. How could I see anything? And so there's that's indication that uh, Prophet Muhammad did not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. But he was just in the presence of Allah and Allah gave him the orders in a way that befits his majesty. So Prophet Muhammad now has the orders and this is just an example or one more indication of how important prayer is for Muslims. It came directly from Allah. You have Prophet Muhammad and Musa negotiating and going back and forth in this thing. And Allah and his mercy loaded down from 50 down to 5. And out of shyness, Prophet Muhammad would not go back and get a lower down even more. So I don't think there can be any doubt as to the importance and role of prayer as Muslims. This is not something that just came out of Prophet Muhammad's mind. It is not something he just made up just to try and give us some discipline. This was an order directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we kind of have to do it. <laughs> you kind of have to do the prayer. All the five pillars have to be done, but the prayer especially needs to be taken seriously. Once again, it's a direct order from Allah to his messenger and not just through the Quran, even though coming through the Quran is just as important, directly communicated to Prophet Muhammad and now it's brought back to us and we have to do this. So Prophet Muhammad returns and he goes back down uh, through the seven heavens back to back to um, Masjid al-Aqsa, then makes the trip back to the Kaaba and he arrives back in the Kaaba and now on his travel through the um, in his travel from Jerusalem back to Mecca, he saw a caravan that was on its way to Mecca, and this plays an importance in a, an important role in a few minutes. We'll see how that plays an important role. Now Rasulullah Sallam he arrives back in Mecca, and you can imagine how he feels. He's like, I hate, I don't want to use the word stoked, but he is full of confidence now after all the difficulty he's gone through. Three years of persecute, three years of boycott, all of the persecution his him and his followers have had been through, going from tribe to tribe to tribe, and most of them rejecting him, going to Taif and having them stone him and chase him out of the town, barely with his life. You can after all going through all that, and Allah sends this mercy down to him. This is such a morale booster for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and you can imagine how full of confidence and. Like I said, I don't want to use the word stoked, but you can see how stoked and, and confident he was that Allah is with him. He always knew Allah was with him, but his morale is now at a much higher level. And he knows that this message has to go on and he has to find a way to keep it going on. And that's why some people say that this may have happened before that Hajj pilgrimage when so many people were coming into Mecca because people say that this was the impetus, this gave him the impetus and the and the courage to go and the encouragement to go through the tribes and, and um, who were coming to Hajj and preach to them confidently. And Allah knows best which came first and which came afterwards. It, in, in the end, it doesn't really matter. The point is that this was a, a, a morale booster for him. 
You also should know that Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj was not meant to convince the pagans of the truthfulness of the message of Islam. It was not meant for them. It was meant for Prophet Muhammad as a morale booster for him. The Quraysh, in fact, when they heard about it, they were actually kind of happy. Now, you can imagine the, the pagan Quraysh. Now, the enemies of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu they're going through now 11 years of trying to get rid of this guy. 11 years of first just talking about him, then spreading lies about him, then outright persecuting him and his followers, then Boyk trying to starve them in, starve them out of existence, and then boycotting him. They've done everything they could to get rid of this guy, to shut him up. And then you can imagine how happy they are when he comes with, up with this fantastic story, this unbelievable story of him traveling from Mecca to Jerusalem all in one night, and then beyond that, going up through these things called the seven heavens, which they have no idea about. You can imagine, this is like, to them, from their perspective, it's like he just gave them a gift. It's like, you could not have said anything better. And they take this and they run with it. And the first person they go to, the first person they go to when they hear about this. Now, first of all, when Prophet got came back from Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, he told his cousin about it. And she tell, she warned him, don't let the word about this get out. If they hear about it, they're going to use it against you. But Allah knows best the reason why, maybe because he was just super confident now. He did tell some people and the word did get out and when Abu Jal and the others heard about this they were like this is like manna from heaven they were just so happy that he could give them this because now they had more artillery from their perspective that they could use against Prophet Muhammad Hassan. now it wasn't just them saying all sorts of crazy things about him now he was the one who from their perspective was now looking crazy who was now looking like the liar and now they have something to use against him and they run to Abu Bakr. They want to get to him before Prophet Muhammad gets him. They say, we got to get to Abu Bakr. That's the strongest supporter now that uh, Abu Talib and Khadija are going. Abu Bakr is the staunchest supporter. So they run to Abu Bakr and they go to him and they say, have you heard? Have you heard the news? Do you hear what your, what your buddy is saying, what your companion is saying? Abu Bakr hasn't heard anything yet. He's dealing with his daily business. He hasn't heard anything yet. And they run to him and they tell him, well, have you heard what your, what your friend is saying? And then they tell him that he says, get this, man. He says he traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem, which is a trip that usually takes several weeks. We know this. We have caravans. We do this trip every single year, multiple times a year. We know that even in the best of conditions with the fastest camels and the lightest loads, this is the trip that takes several weeks and he's saying he did this in one day one night do you really believe this guy now do you really think that he's telling the truth now now Abu Bakr now he knows who he's talking to he's talking to Abu Jal the father of ignorance he knows the kind of people he's dealing with Abu Bakr is no fool whatsoever he actually is a very wise person he knows that this may just be a trick from the Quraysh trying to get him to say something that they can use against the messenger of Allah. Or maybe it's some other, maybe they misunderstood something. Maybe it's something from the revelation. He doesn't know what it is yet, but he knows he can't trust these Quraysh. He can't trust these pagans after all the stuff they've done. He knows he can't trust them. So he says the wisest thing of all. He says, if Muhammad said it, 
then it's true. And he says that to let them know that I'm not necessarily going to believe what you say, but I'm not going to disbelieve it either because maybe he did say that. And if he said it, then it's true. But maybe you're making something up. And so I don't, I'm not going to commit 100%. But if my message, if my prophet, the prophet of Allah said this, then I'm going to believe him no matter how strange it may sound to you. Now, also, now, Abu Bakr, of course, he eventually does hear from Prophet Muhammad Sassam directly, and he does believe it. And he accepts the message. He, said, he accepts that the Prophet Muhammad went, went on Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, and that's that. Now, as far as the um, other evidence of Prophet Muhammad's trip to Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, he mentioned that on his way back, he passed by the caravan, and he told the people of Mecca, that there's a caravan coming that they were not aware of was coming. They didn't know it was coming. They didn't expect it to come. But he told them it was coming because he had seen on his on his way back. And so when he did this, there was this was an evidence that the that he was actually telling the truth. Also, they wanted to ask him about the windows and the windows in one of the buildings. I guess Beit uh, al They asked him about the windows in one of the buildings in Jerusalem, but Prophet Muhammad didn't know the answer to that question, and so Jibril, Allah sent Jibril to give him the correct number because he hadn't seen either. He didn't see it or he wasn't paying attention, but he know that he didn't know the exact number of windows in whatever building that they were talking about. Remember, Abu Jahl and the others were all merchants. They had been back and forth to to Jerusalem many times, and so they knew the area fairly well, and so when. They asked him this to challenge him. Well, how many how many windows does such and such building have? They were doing this just to try to prove that Prophet Muhammad was lying or was crazy or whatever. But he didn't know. But Allah sent Jibril with the correct answer. Right, as far as the caravan, yeah, the Prophet Muhammad he saw the caravan that was coming that was coming over that night. And he had specific details about it. He knew the the uh, the type of camels that it was carrying. He knew about the load that it was carrying. He knew how many how many were there. Because he had seen all this in his travel. And so he told them about this. And sure enough, later that same day, the caravan does come. And it is exactly as he described it. Yet still, the the Quraysh still did not believe him. Now, the importance of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj cannot be overstated. One of the most important things is that it links the these two holy buildings, Al-Kaaba and Masjid al-Aqsa and links them as two houses of worship. It also links the cities of Mecca and Jerusalem. And for many years, for several years, don't say many years, for several years, Masjid al-Aqsa was the Qibla. It was the first Qibla, the first direction of prayer for the Muslims. And this was an honor that Allah gave to Bani Israel, but they lost that honor when because of their own arrogance and because of refusal to accept the message of Islam. We have to keep in mind that Islam is not something new and separate. It is the same religion that was practiced and preached by all the messengers of Allah. So there may have been people who take the message of Islam and change it into Christianity or change it into into Judaism or change it into this and change it into that. There's always the same message of Tawheed. And so... For those people who are not Muslim, it's not as if you're asking them to convert from one religion to another. You're asking them to accept the truth of what they already believe and purify it. 
So all they're doing is the truth of what they already they already believe in monotheism. They're already Jewish or Christian. They already have evidence of monotheism. They just have to purify it, and Islam purifies it. This is the truth of what they're already believing. So it's not like we're asking them to convert from one thing to something totally different. Though I understand that from their perspective, it may look like that because they have to take on so many new duties and some things have to change in their lifestyle, but that's only because they are perfecting their worship. And so when the Jews did not accept Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu this was their second chance at getting a prophet because they rejected Isa Salam, and then they reject Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And so by this time, the arrogance was just way overboard. And so they lost the honor of having the Qibla. And from the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to now, Mecca has been the Qibla for Muslims and will be until the Day of Judgment. And so they've lost that honor. That's something that they can only blame themselves for. As we already mentioned, another important lesson from Al-Isra wa Al-Miraj was shows the links and the connection between all the prophets. And we spoke about this just a few seconds ago. It shows that all the prophets, they were not preaching Christianity or Judaism. They were all preaching Islam, submission to Allah. They are all preaching worship Allah alone. And that is something that all the prophets were links uh taught and all of them preached and that is why the prophets were brothers in a, in a sense not obviously not genetic brothers but brothers in, in this, but spiritual spiritual brothers in a sense and this is why they were so happy to see prophet Muhammad when he came through um, when he came through the seven heavens many of them greeted him and they're happy to see him and Musa alayhi salam he, he even cried when he saw him because he, he knew that his people had had lost the message and that his people were not going to be the saved people that they thought they were. And he knew that Prophet Muhammad was coming, was coming with the final truth. And he cried out of sadness for the loss that his people would have, Bani Israel. And so Al-Isra'u shows the connection and the links between all the prophets. And we also already mentioned how it shows the importance of prayer and how prayer is a fundamental part of the Muslim life. And we also show, spoke about how Al-Isra'u was not meant to be something to convince the Quraysh about the truthfulness of Islam is meant as a morale booster for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi So that's going to pretty much end our class for today. Just a few. One last thing is that also not too long after this, the Prophet married Aisha radiallahu anha, the daughter of Abu Bakr. But we're going to have to spend some time on that one. So we're going to do that one next week, inshallah. Only reason I want to spend more time on that one because it's a controversial issue. I want to deal with it in depth. In depth, I don't want to breeze over it, but it's something that we need to that we do need need to discuss, and we will discuss it inshallah in the next class. So at this point in time, we are finished with the base. We're finished with everything that I have scheduled. I don't have anything else scheduled for right now. What we do know is that while the Prophet is is going through Al Isra Wal Mi'raj, and while the people are debating whether they should accept him or not. Unbeknownst to anyone there in Medina, well, right now it's still called Yathrib, in the little town of Yathrib, those six people are busy preaching the message of Islam and converting dozens and dozens of people to Islam, spreading the message, and many people are coming to Islam. So much so that within a year, that group of six people will come back at 70. And as I mentioned already before, while all these things are happening, I don't think anybody knew <laughs> the repercussions that these events will have. 
And Allah knows best. Any questions as for now before we end the class? Wa'iyakum. 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 All right, there are no more questions in. We're going to end it here. I mean, you as well. Okay, there's just one more thing in my notes that just came up, but was it was in my notes. I just didn't remember to tell it to you. During Al-Isra wa Al-Mi'raj, well, uh, I guess it's Al-Isra, Al-Isra, uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was offered both milk and wine, and he chose the milk instead of the wine. And Jibril, Jibril confirmed that you chosen correctly, and this is an indication that the um that his ummah is rightly guided. And as far as the Quranic references to Al Isra Wal Miraj, you can see it in Surah Al Isra, that's the seventeenth chapter of the Quran. Um call Allah Ta'ala fi kitabihi Ba'da'udu Balahi Minna Shaitan Rajim Bismillahi Rahman Rahim Subhanallahi Asra bi abadihi laylam minal masjidil haram ila al masjidil aqsal ladhi barakna alladhi barakna hawlahu linuriyahu min ayatina innahu huwa sami'ul basir The translation of that is exalted is he who took his servant by night from al masjidil haram to al masjidil aqsa whose surroundings we have blessed to show him of our signs. Indeed, he is the hearing, the seeing. So in that verse, you can see the word, Subhanallah the Asra. Asra is, so he's mentioned, night journey. Bi'abdihi laylam min al-masjidin haram. Masjidin haram is the sacred masjid, which is the Kaaba. Ila masjid al-Aqsa, which means the farthest masjid, but that is al-masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem whose surroundings we have blessed. And it is also mentioned again, some of the events are mentioned also in Surah Tanajam, when Allah says, it mentions a tree that Prophet Muhammad saw, which is the low tree, which he saw at the utmost boundary, which is the highest heaven. The translation of those verses are, and he certainly saw him in another descent, at the low tree of the utmost boundary, near it is the garden of refuge. This is what um, Prophet Muhammad saw, saw the, the mis- I'll say, I don't want to say mystical, but the low tree that is in the highest heaven. And from this heaven, from this, from this tree, there were two rivers running from it, running through it. And I don't want to misquote the hadith, so I'll just stop there because I'm, I forgot the, I forgot some of it. I forgot some of the details. I'll leave it alone on that. But the low tree was, was the low tree was a tree that Prophet saw in the highest heaven. And I sent the the, uh, the link to the hadith. You can read it there. It should give clarification there, inshallah. But those two surahs have some of the information about al Isra wal Mi'raj. And if that's it, we're going to close out here, then, inshallah. Subhanaka Allahumma wa bihamdika nashadan la ilaha al-anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Inshallah we'll be back next week.